Now remain standing for our lesson and our sermon text from John 2. Listen carefully to the gospel of God. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up. To the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk. Then the inferior wine. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word, which is truth. Sanctify us this Lord's day. By your truth, through your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I'm actually going to spend two Sundays on this passage. First 11 verses of John 2. It's an important foundational passage. John's gospel. It's the first story in the the narrative of Jesus' ministry. And so it's a new section in John's gospel after chapter one. We're going to spend a couple weeks digging into it. There's so many riches here. I just couldn't fit it all into one sermon, one Sunday. And so know that we're not going to cover everything There are going to be some questions probably, and maybe we can talk about it during the Q&A, but there are going to be some questions that don't get answered, Um, some parts of this passage that I'm not going to address directly, but hopefully we'll come back next week and I'll do it then. This passage from John 2 presents a problem. The problem is stated by Mary in verse 3. They have no wine. Now, this is not just a statement about the party, about the wedding feast. It also is a statement about the spiritual condition of everyone apart from Christ and his kingdom. Life without Christ is life without good wine. Another way of saying that, saying this is that life without Christ is life without joy. Throughout Scripture, wine is a symbol of joy. Psalm 104, 15 says that wine gladdens the heart of man. There's an interesting, beautiful story in Judges 9. Jotham 
tells a parable in which the trees ask the vine to rule over them. And do you remember the vine's response in Judges 9, 13? Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? One more verse. Listen to Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. To the Jewish mind, wine symbolized joy. And so when Mary says in verse 3, there is no wine, theologically she is saying there is no joy. The joy had run out. Of course, the point here is not that people who don't drink wine can't be happy. You can have the joy of the Lord without wine. That's not the point at all. The point is that the wine of this world... The old wine always runs out. Without Christ and his gifts, without Christ and the wine of his kingdom, you can't have joy. It's impossible to have joy without Jesus. The universal experience of mankind from the very beginning until now and to the end, the universal experience of mankind apart from Christ is that there comes a time When the wine runs out apart from God, the wine runs out apart from Christ. True, lasting joy is impossible. That's a rule, and it's a rule. For which there is no exception. It's it cannot be broken. You can try to replace Christ with cheap joy with cheap wine, but it will always run out. And it'll always run out sooner than you think. Not when you're expecting it to. But even those of us who belong to Christ can experience this running out of wine. And most of us probably have experienced this at some time or another. We've all tested the wines of the world to see if they satisfy, to see if they can bring the deep joy that every one of us longs for. But the rule is this, no matter who you are, no matter what wines you've tasted, you're trying to find your joy in something or someone other than Christ, there will come a time when the thrills and the excitements dry up. The idols that we erect in place of Christ always wear out. The wines of the world always disappoint. They never come through for us in the end. They never take us all the way to the end of the feast. Often the wine dries up when life seems good the day before. Life seems to be at its best. Our family is healthy. We're we're making more money than we ever have. Our friends are multiplying. We've, We've got the world by the tail. But somehow the wine fails. Life loses its sparkle and you wake up one morning to discover you have no joy. If the secondary blessings of life, the secondary blessings from God, are your focus, then joylessness is inevitable for you. If you live for anything other than Christ and his kingdom, then you will never find true joy. If your focus is on accomplishments, exhilaration, then your joy is built on sand. If you're looking for your deepest joy, 
even in family or friends or good work that God's given you to do. Your deepest joy. If, it's, if it's, you're finding it there, then the joy you're looking for will always remain just outside your grasp. Now, it's not that those things can't bring us joy, secondary joy, we can call it. But it can't be the primary source of joy. All these things are cheap replacements if we put them before Christ, if we erect them as idols before God. They're cheap replacements of joy that can that will only disappoint. True joy, lasting joy, must come from the Lord, from the person of Jesus, from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and an intimate relationship with Him. That's why King David prayed in Psalm 62, My soul waits in silence for God. He's waiting for God alone. My soul waits in silence for God alone. Are you willing to wait for God and only for him in silence? Or do you have to fill up the silence with noises and activities and doings and goings? Where are you trying to find your deep joy that you desperately want, but that seems so evasive? Are you willing to weep all night, as our psalm lesson said, And wait for joy to come in the morning. Willing to wait for it. Or do you have to have it right now? You can't wait until then. One of the most simple and yet most profound comforting promises in Scripture is Isaiah 26.3. You keep him, he's talking to God, you God keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Because he trusts in you. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed fixed on you because he trusts in you. You keep your mind stayed on God. God will give you perfect peace, perfect joy. That's a rule. And there's no exceptions to that rule either. Life outside of Christ is joyless. But oftentimes Christians, we live without the joy that is ours because Christ is not our Focal point. If Christ is not at the center of your life, the center of your party, the center of your feast, he is not the one you long for above everything else, you will inevitably find yourself wondering where the joy went. Is that you? Are you living without joy? Has the wine dried up? Are you living on cheap wine instead of the real thing? You're trying to find deep joy that you long for somewhere other than in Jesus and his kingdom. If so, listen to this story in John 2. Consider this sign, this first sign, this first miracle that Jesus performed in Cana. This this passage tells you and it tells me where to find that true, lasting joy. The first thing that John tells us in verse 1 is that this wedding took place on the third day. Now, I'm going to warn you here, we're, we're fixing to get kind of um, detailed and deep. So just you know, put on your seatbelt and, and follow along here. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And when you see the phrase, on the third day, especially in the Gospels, but really throughout the New Testament. 
it's supposed to make you think about resurrection and new creation. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And so in the, in the New Testament and the early church, any time that phrase on the third day was used, it was used for a reason, to point to the resurrection, to remind us, believers, of the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. The, the new creation dawned when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Jesus officially inaugurated the new age, the one we're in now, the one that's going to uh, be consummated, culminate when Jesus returns. He officially inaugurated the new age when he was raised to new life on the third day. Very important theological truth, very important phrase. Jesus became the first fruits of the new creation when he came back to life on the first, on the third day. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5:17, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away, the new behold, the new has come. Jesus shares his resurrection life with those who belong to him. We, we don't have our resurrection bodies. We still live in the old creation, right? But if you are united to Jesus, if you have put your faith in him and entrusted yourself to Christ, then you belong to the new creation. You are a new creation. Your old self has passed away. The old Adam is gone. Behold, your new self. The new man, the new person has come. The old Adam has died. Behold, Christ, the new Adam, the last Adam, the second Adam, now lives in you. Right? Adam was your covenant head, but now Christ is your covenant head. You are in him, therefore in the new creation. You've been transferred from one kingdom to another, from one creation to another. You're in the new creation. You are a new creation. Galatians 2.20, I'll personalize it. You have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you live now in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. That's who you are. The one who transforms water into wine is the one and the only one who can transform you and who has transformed you from your old self to your new self, the new you in Christ. The one who made new wine is also the one who will make all things new one day, finally. The process has already begun. He's making all things new even now. And so the first sub-point in your outline, if you're following the outline, is that the wedding took place on the third day. Verse 1, this points to the resurrection, it points to new creation, it points to transformation, which is really what this story is about. And this brings us to the second sub-point in the outline. The wedding took place on the sixth day. That's not a contradiction. Why do, why do I say that? What do I mean? Well, there's something really neat going on here. Uh, and we need to talk about it, and it's going to get a little dense, but, but it's important. I think we need to talk about it. So far in his gospel, John has been meticulously keeping track of days. 
The other gospel writers don't do this kind of thing. And he doesn't do it all the way through. He's doing it for a reason. He's keeping track of the number of days since the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it turns out that the third day in chapter 2, verse 1, is actually the sixth day in the grand scheme of things, in the whole gospel. If you have your Bible open to John 1 and 2, I can show you how this works. Look back in chapter 1 and verse 29. John 129 says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. Okay, so that's that's day two, the next day. The first day was the day before this day. And now he's telling us the next day. The first day goes back to verse 19. Verse 29 indicates the second day. Now look at verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. That's day three. Now look at verse 43. The following day, or the next day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he did. That's day four. Okay. Now look at chapter 2, verse 1, our verse. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. Now that brings us to the sixth day. Now, if you're doing the arithmetic, you might think, wait, day four and then third day, that's, that's day seven. Four plus three is seven. Well, the phrase on the third day, though, is a common way of saying two days later, the way we measure days. For example, Jesus died on a Friday and rose two days later on a Sunday. He rose two days later, but another way of saying this is that he rose on the third day, right? Two days later. The first day was Friday. They died. The second day, Saturday. The third day, Sunday. So the third day in John 2, 1, is day 6 in John's gospel. And it's very important. In case I went too fast for you in that, I'm going to recap it very quickly and go over it again. Except this time, I'm going to back up a little further in the text to the beginning of John 1 and point out something that I didn't mention the first time. Okay? Look how John begins his gospel. John 1, 1. In the beginning... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He uses that in the beginning twice to drive home the point. And do you hear the echoes from Genesis 1, right? That's how Genesis begins. And when I preached through John 1, verses 1 to 5, the very first sermon on this gospel, we saw that the first five verses of John's gospel correspond very closely to the first five verses of Genesis. John does that purposely. Both passages refer to God's creation of all things. Both passages talk about light and darkness, both passages in the relationship between the two. Both passages begin with, in the beginning. And both Genesis and John's gospel open by counting off six days. Right? You see that? Genesis tells the story of the first creation week. John is telling us the first week in the ministry of Jesus. That's why John carefully tracks these six days at the beginning of Christ's ministry. The first day begins in John 1.19. The sixth day ends in chapter 2, verse 11, the end of our passage today. So again, 
you want to follow along very quickly, the first day goes from chapter 1, verse 19, verse 28. Day 2, verse 29 to 34. Third day begins, verse 35 goes to verse 42. The fourth day begins in verse 43 and goes to the end of the chapter. And then chapter 2 jumps forward to two days from day 4 to day 6 on the third day. So there's really two things going on here with on the third day. There's the third day resurrection, new creation, transformation theme. But there's also sixth day theme going on here. And notice as I'm talking about this, remember that there were six jars. So the number six is being emphasized. Now, we need to, we need, it's all interesting maybe, but we need to ask the question, so what? Why is this important? Why does John go out of his way to track these six days in the first two chapters? Well, part of the answer is that John wants us to see the parallels between the first six days of Jesus' ministry and the first six days of creation. The first six days of work, uh, of the work of Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, are equivalent in force and and in nature to the first six days of the work of God at the beginning of time. Now, it's not that everything correlates, every detail correlates to some other detail. That's not the point. We, we, We need to look at it with a broader scope than that. But the first six days of the work of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry are equivalent in force to the first six days of the work of God at the beginning of time. The focus throughout John's gospel is on the sixth day. It's not day seven yet. It's still day six. It's not time to rest yet. It's time to work. <clears throat> the Sabbath is coming, but it hasn't come yet. We're still waiting for the seventh day to arrive. And so, in a sense, John's gospel takes place on the sixth day. Now, not this very day, but on the sixth day leading up to the, to the cross, which happens on the sixth day. Jesus died on a Friday, the sixth day. The emphasis on day six also tells us that Jesus is a new Adam. Jesus is the new man. Adam, Adam, is the Hebrew word for man. In Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 say that Jesus is the second Adam or the last Adam. Jesus is the new and better Adam. He's going to do what Adam failed to do. And do you remember which day of the week Adam was created on in Genesis 1? He was created on day 6. And so John's gospel is about the new Adam, the new man. On the sixth day, God created man. On the same day, God made the woman. And he presented the woman to the man. And the man said, she shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. God joined the first man and the first woman together in the first marriage. All of this, the first man, first woman, first wedding, first marriage, it all happened on day six in Genesis 1. This is important background to the wedding at Cana, which also happens on day six. This story introduces us to a new man, a new woman, a new bridegroom. And a new bride, new Adam, a new Eve. Now, I'm not talking about the man and the woman who got married in Cana on that day. That man and that woman, they fade into the background in this narrative, don't don't they? We don't know their names. We don't know anything about them. 
except that the man failed to have enough wine. The two main characters are Jesus, the Adam figure, and Mary, the Eve figure. Jesus makes this symbolism explicit when he refers to his mother as woman. There's been a lot of ink spilt on why he did. Why does he refer to her as woman? Well, it wasn't disrespectful or cold. It had theological significance. It's also significant that Mary and Jesus are the first two people mentioned in the story. In verses 1 and 2, we hear about the wedding, and you might think, well, okay, we're going to hear about who's going to get married, the first, the most, you know, the two, the bride and the groom. But they're not mentioned. The main characters are Jesus and Mary. They're the man and the woman. The true bridegroom in the story is Jesus. He's the one who comes through with the wine. And Mary symbolizes the church. Mary is, repre- is a representative figure here. She plays the role of the bride the bride of Christ. Mary represents the woman, capital W, woman, in Genesis 3.15. Remember, that woman is the whole people of God. She is the capital W, woman. So when Jesus calls Mary woman, he points us back to, to the garden, back to Eve, but also forward to the church. She is the capital W woman. And when Jesus calls her this, we should think about all of these things that I'm talking about. Mary symbolizes the bride of the new Adam. Now, if this seems weird or far-fetched, let me remind you that Scripture regularly uses women to symbolize or to represent in stories, allegorically, God's people. Okay? The first time this happens is in Genesis 3.15. Something very similar is going on where God tells Satan that he's going to make war between Satan and the woman. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. The only woman in Genesis 3 is is Eve, but the woman that God is referring to in Genesis 3.15 is the people of God. And Eve represents that woman, but she only Represents. She's only a representative of the people of God. Eve herself is a member of this capital W woman, which is God's people, God's bride. There are other. There are several other places in Scripture where this kind of thing happens, and we're not going to look at them all now. But I'll just you can look at them yourself in Ezekiel 16, Hosea. First three chapters, remember Hosea's bride. Galatians 4, Ephesians 5, and one of the most important places is Revelation 12. I preached on Revelation 12 a few months back where the woman, the capital W woman, gives birth to Jesus, but then she also gives birth to God's people throughout the church age. So coming back to our passage in John 2, Mary is a representative figure in this story. She's a woman who points us to the woman. Jesus makes this clear when he somewhat awkwardly refers to her as woman in verse 4. She's the new Eve. She's not herself Eve, though. She only represents the new Eve. The real Eve is the church. 
true bride of Christ is the people of God. Mary's role in this story ultimately points to the church. And this is also not the only place where Jesus addresses a woman that he's talking to as woman with with this kind of theological import. Jesus does does this a handful of other times in the Gospels. He does it in John 8 with the woman caught in adultery. He says to her in John 8.10, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? See, the adulterous woman represents the bride of Christ who is not condemned anymore because of Jesus. Even though she has an adulterous past, even though we have an adulterous past, we are not condemned because we belong to the bridegroom, Jesus. The most significant occurrence of of Jesus addressing a woman as woman is in John 20, where he calls Mary Magdalene woman when he sees her in the garden after his resurrection. Mary She's at the empty tomb in the garden and she is she's weeping. She doesn't know where Jesus is. Somebody's taken my Lord, she thinks and says. And angels say, woman, why are you weeping? And then Jesus sees her and says, woman, why are you weeping? Jesus knows Mary very well, and yet he addresses her not as Mary initially. He initially addresses her as woman. Now, this resurrection scene in John 20 is full of Adam and Eve imagery. All right? And we need to think about this just for a second because it's what John is going to be doing. It's what he's doing in John 2. It's going to be what he does throughout his gospel. It's full of Adam and Eve imagery. For example, and I'm talking about John 20 right now, this garden scene with Mary. It takes place in a garden. Right? In Genesis, God puts Adam to sleep and creates a bride from Adam's side in the garden. And when Adam awakes, he greets his woman. And he says, woman. In John, God puts the new Adam to sleep on the cross and creates a bride from Christ's side as well. And when Jesus awakes, he greets his woman in the garden. When the new Adam rises from the dead and sees Mary in the garden, he, the first word he says is woman. Mary Magdalene symbolizes, she represents the capital W woman. She is representative of the bride of Christ. And Jesus has to tell her not to cling to him. Don't hold fast to me. Don't cleave to me yet. Because he has to ascend to his father before he makes this cleaving official with his new bride that he has won. There's a lot going on in John's gospel. It's a whole lot more than meets the eye, including our passage here in John 2, verses 1 to 11. It seems to be a story about the marriage between a nameless man and woman from Cana. But it's really about the marriage between Christ and his bride, Christ and his church. The real real bride is the church. The real bridegroom is Jesus. And John's gospel is going to be about Jesus and his bride. Recall the words of John the Baptist just one chapter later in John 3, verses 29 to 30. He says about Jesus, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. 
So this is an important theme for John's gospel. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, increase, I must decrease. You also see that theme of joy, marriage, joy, bridegroom, bride. That's what John is all about. He's, inter- he's introducing us to this theme now in this story about turning water into wine in Cana. This passage also is about Jesus and his bride, the church. Now, this reminds us of what Paul does. It reminds us of Paul's puzzling words in Ephesians 5. Remember that? At the end of Ephesians 5, Paul sounds like he's talking about marriage between a man and a woman. And in one sense, he is. But toward the end of the passage, he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave or cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. But remember what he says in the very next verse kind of throws us off a little bit. Now, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Right? So he's giving us this great rich advice exhortation about husbands and wives that, that we can apply to our marriage marriages. But then at the end he says but, but I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. When Paul's talking about marriage between a man and a woman, it turns out he's really talking about marriage between Christ and his bride. And something similar is going on here, narratively, in John 2, 1 to 11. It appears that John is telling a story about a man, a marriage of a man and a woman from Cana, of Galilee. But in reality, John's telling about the mystery of Christ's marriage to the church between the new Adam and the new Eve. The central man and the central woman here in this story are Christ and his people. Jesus is the true bridegroom. He's the new Adam and the true bridegroom. In first century culture, the bridegroom was responsible for making sure the wine was flowing. The bridegroom from Cana failed. He ran out of wine. Verses 9 and 10, the master of the feast ironically gives credit to this bridegroom, this this unnamed bridegroom, for coming up with such good wine at this point in the feast. But the credit does not belong to him. He's not the one who came up with this wine. It belongs to the true bridegroom. Credit belongs to Jesus the true bridegroom came through with the wine. He, he comes through with the joy that was lacking. And, and the wine in this story points ahead to the end of John's gospel, to the blood of Jesus. The water that Jesus turned to wine in these six purification jars points To Jesus, death on the cross is shedding of blood. Jesus chose these six purification jars for a reason. He could have done it differently. He could have used different containers, perhaps. He could have created the containers right there on the spot. But he told the servants to fill up these six jars that were not drinking jars. They were purification jars for the Jewish rite of purification. And the point here, the reason he does this, is that real purification, true purification, pure, real cleansing is in 
the blood. In the wine, which points to the blood. The old covenant purification rituals were passing away. And the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, was coming soon. The purification rites of the old covenant, they had worn out. They'd given out. They were, they were drying up. In fact, the old covenant purification rituals were never really able to do what humanity, what mankind needs. We need something far greater than what these purification rituals could accomplish. They could never cleanse humans from sin, from our sin. They were never able really to purify sinners. They never did satisfy God's wrath against our sin. They were unable to make peace between God and man. They were always unable. There's only one thing that can wash away mankind's sin. Only one thing that can satisfy God's wrath against sinners like you and me. One thing that can make peace between God and man, between you and God. The one thing is the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed on the cross for you. Nothing else purifies, nothing else satisfies God, nothing else brings peace or joy. The wine of Christ's kingdom, the wine in this story, the wine of Christ's kingdom is the blood of Christ. Don't miss that. The wine of the kingdom is the blood of Christ. If you're looking for wine anywhere else, if you're looking for joy anywhere other than in Christ and his blood, if it doesn't start there, you're looking for the wrong wine. The wine of the world will dry up. And it'll dry up when you least expect it. And it'll leave you high and dry. The wine that Christ offers, on the other hand, never fails. It never fails to satisfy. It is powerful. It transforms. It provides deep joy. It's not like any other wine. The good news is that you can, you can have a life of deep joy in the Lord. It's not impossible. It's not even complex. It's quite simple. Not to say that it's easy, but it's very simple. It's as simple as Isaiah 26, 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Having true, lasting joy is perhaps the simplest thing you can accomplish. But to get it, you have to stop thinking that all the good things in life other than Christ can be the source of deep joy, the deep joy that you long for. You've got to stop looking for joy everywhere except in your relationship with God. You've got to stop looking for joy in all the wrong places. The only place you'll find it is in Jesus. At his table, in his kingdom, 
the only place. Period. That's that's a absolute rule. There are no exceptions. No one has ever been able to break that rule and find a loophole in it. And why would you look for it anywhere else? If you just think about it, right? Why? Who else has ever transformed water into wine? Let's just start there. Just start with this one small passage in one gospel. But who else can transform hearts and minds? Nobody. Who else could have transformed the old you into the new you? Who else is able to make all things new? Is there anyone or anything as powerful or as wise or as good as God? Does anything or anyone love you more than Jesus? Has anyone else provided purification for your sins? Anybody ever been able to do that for you? Besides Jesus, has anyone ever died for you so that you could spend eternity with God? Is there anyone? Is there anything? Then why would you look for deep joy in anything or anyone other than Christ? Why would you think that anything or anyone could offer you and provide what Jesus can? Why would you want to drink any other wine than the wine of Christ's kingdom? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses our sins, that makes us right with you, God, and that offers us joy unending. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.